Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world. Broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world. BlakeRadio.com. Music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. You are listening to Rainbow Soul.
across the and really throughout the globe. And so this is what we're the situation. I'm just going to talk about one piece of information. A lot of people say, oh, these doctors are terrible. We should take them out and shoot. A lot of time we discussed that many doctors are actually shooting themselves. Even more importantly is many U.S. citizens are removing themselves from medical residency programs, simply saying, you know what, I've had enough. I'm not going any further. I'm done with this. So this is one really key for information. This is not just in the United States, but also Canada as well. And the uh, headline reads, Medical Resident Burnout Reaches Epidemic Report Level. And this comes out of Toronto, Canada. And uh, the burnout rate among medical residents is at a new high, research suggests. And the survey I investigated at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, in the United States, and showed that about 8% of residents meet the criteria for burnout. That's, that's really incredible. When I was uh, training, 1983 is when I uh, entered my first uh, residency program, uh, there, there was no burnout. Everybody was excited. Everybody was happy. Everybody was looking forward to a new status of full-fledged licensed doctor. It really an incredible amount of optimism in the air. Oh, yeah, people were concerned about uh, the long hours, more than 100 hours a week, concerned about being hazed and belittled by um, senior doctors and staff. But uh, the overall feel was, hey, I am just full of vinegar and I'm just ready to get out of this residency and be a doctor. But that's not, uh, burnout is defined as a combination of emotional burnout, depersonalization, and low personal accomplishment. It's interesting because, again, way back in the good old days, if you want to call them that, in the uh, early 80s, well, that they were worthwhile, that they were people, felt that they had accomplished a tremendous amount just by being in the residency. So they're saying here, burnout is looking at your schedule in the morning and thinking, how am I going to get through it all? It's hard to do what you need to do in a day. Now, my paralyzing, what doctors are now looking at is mounting that snow trip way of paying in terms of their anticipating. <laughs> Utility. And so look at all these specialties. It's beautiful residents. 
89%. Out, x-ray, 85%. Surgical subspecialties, 82%. Now, you notice that to appreciate. These are the long-term residents. Anesthesiology, 81%. 79%. That's still pretty high. That's a three-year residency. Had the highest rate of burnout was pediatrics, 53%. In practice, in pathology, 46% had the lowest. Now, for medicine and pediatrics, one could say that those are optimistic specialties, but also these are doctors paid in low earnings and probably took out very low loans, by the way. And pathology, which is the examination of dead uh, people and body parts, had the lowest rate of resonant birth, but it's still very high, showing futile and with a lack of accomplishment. And so, uh, it said, of course, psychiatry residents were in the middle of the range. So this is really positive, that basically what we're here is human beings are saying, you know what, I don't think I can do this. This doesn't sound right. And so that's positive. So you've got the doctors, young doctors, Turning away from this, seeing what they have to do So, what else can we screening rates fall and fall short goal? And the um, indoctrination public. People are saying, you know what? I'm going to stay home. Um, I'm not for this cancer screening. I'm not getting the rock. I'm not getting my boobs, mass, and slice, and dice. And this is really awesome. Screening for breast and colorectal cancer saw no improvement overall in 2013. No, it's People are not showing up. The propaganda is not responding to Obamacare. The money unavailable to the industry unless the patient shows up. So um, the way it works is medical premiums medical are mandatory. This money is paid into an insurance mechanism, but that money gets stuck there and cannot be distributed until a patient shows up for intervention. So thank you to the chat room for letting me know that uh, my connection is not perfect, so we're going to switch over. Okay, so that should be better, better quality. Okay, so people are actually not showing up. So they're not showing up for their breast cancer, their colorectal cancer, and even cervical cancer screening, these pap smears, the ritual rape of the American woman population fell during that period. 
So this is really awesome news. Why? Because when all this money accumulates in one space and grows and grows and Okay, so I am back. This is Dr. Daniels listening to Human Dr. Daniels on the Blake Radio Network Rainbow Soul. And tonight's topic is the awakening. So what we're finding then is that people are not showing up for their breast cancer screening. They're not showing up for colorectal cancer screening. And they're not showing up for past smears. This is absolutely awesome. What does it mean? that someone does not show up for breast cancer screening, or that women aren't showing up in uh, larger numbers. This is, is apparent when you realize that, as, that in a cancer screening program, for every 10 women who are labeled as having cancer, not possibly having cancer, but having cancer, that means positive biopsy and mastectomy recommended, Nine of those women do not have a condition that would shorten their life if left untreated. And so what this means then is literally a 90% reduction in potential income from cancer treatment for the medical industrial complex. This is a huge impact in the area of breast cancer. Similar diagnostic criteria for colorectal cancer, um, it is estimated that as many as 50% of people diagnosed with colorectal cancer as a result of screening actually have a condition that, if left untreated, would in no way um, shorten their life. So that's amazing. And for cervical cancer screening, let me just say between a screened and unscreened population, uh, there's, there's less than a 1% difference in mortality. It reaches into the hundreds of thousands. So the benefit of a cervical cancer uh, screening is you just have to scratch your head to figure out how that might be benefiting from. Um, so the fact that women and men are staying home is huge, absolutely huge. And so there's a task force on this. The authors note that the Healthy People 2020 goals for cancer screening follow the current United States Preventative Services Task Force guidelines and national health interview survey data are used to track progress toward those targets. So 80% of women aged 21 to 65 reported recent past testing, which is below the healthy people goal of 93%. That's a pretty big, uh, pretty big gap there between 80 and 93, which is good. We'll see if, if the women can't improve that gap, maybe lower that screening rate to 75 or 70 or 60 or better yet zero. But that's, it's each individual person doing what they think is right and that's where the victory lies. So the baseline in 2008 was 84.5%. And so now women have, have actually turned away from this uh, ritual rape and now the overall percentage is only 80% of women 21 to 65, reported recent PAP testing. Recent, I believe, would be like in the past five years. Moreover, the screening rate declined by 5.5 percentage points between 2000 and 2013, and the um, statistical value of that is very significant, meaning it's not chance alone. 
Now, mammography testing is another area where people have just really done a great job. Uh, mammography testing was lower. Well, we'll just take a look at this. So 72% of women aged 50 to 74 reported having a recent mammography. This is below the target of 81%. And of course, the bigger the gap here, the better, because the more women who get getting that mammography, the more get labeled as having breast cancer, and the more become mutilated with mastectomies and uh, harmed by chemotherapy, even murdered. And this was apparent in uh, 2004. In 2004, there was uh, a big alert that Premarin and Provera therapy, commonly given for postmenopausal women, cause breast cancer. So women said, they just women just stopped taking their hormone replacement therapy and not go to the doctor because they were only showing up in order to get. Um, hormone replacement therapy. So what did they see? They saw a precipitous drop in the mammograms because women didn't show up so they didn't get their mammograms, right? Then what happened, not only was there a drop in mammograms, but there was a drop in the number of cancers diagnosed and there was a drop in the number of deaths from breast cancer. Now, get this. You know, I'm putting your logical thinking cap. So if screening for breast cancer was helpful, then you would expect that the fewer the women were screened, the fewer cancers would be diagnosed, but there would be an increase in deaths from the cancers. So in other words, the number of women dying from cancer would increase because women would be diagnosed at what? At the time of death, right? They wouldn't be getting therapy that would be saving their lives. And so... What's really happening here then is the process of diagnosing these healthy women and erroneously labeling them as, as having breast cancer when they don't. And the process of treating them with mastectomy and the associated surgical complications and treating them with chemotherapy and the associated complications was actually causing quite a bit of death. This was absolutely shocking. I was reading this report, I said, okay, screening goes down, yep, I got it. Diagnosis goes down, I got it. Breast cancer deaths go down, wait a minute. Very, very, very interesting. So that was, so women, uh, while they might not have got that report, they do seem to be uh, coming along here. And this is encouraging because for every 10 women, every 10 diagnoses of breast cancers that are missed, nine women will live without chemo, without, without surgery. Their lives will not be shortened. And they will not have that suffering. So this is, this is great that people have just said, hey, you know what? I'm showing up. Now, colorectal screening rate, rates... Um, are another issue. And so only 58% of respondents, 50 to 75, reported recent colorectal cancer testing, which is also below the healthy people target of 70%. So 
they did get people to buy into it between uh, 2000 and 2010. But after 2010, people said, eh, you know, I don't think so. And so they've not been able to make more inroads. So those of you guys or, or ladies who don't want to be sodomized, guess what? You're on the right track. And so barriers persist for the uninsured. So doctors are being told that people who don't have money and don't have a usual source of care are the ones who are not getting the screening done. And the whole point of this article to the doctors is the doctors say, oh, my God, I need to get start getting these people to start getting their breast, their breast screening, their mammograms, their colonoscopies, and their pap smear stuff. And so the fact that this article is even being mailed out to all the doctors and uh, the doctors just said, hey, are being told, basically, this is a very subtle message, hey, we're watching you. We are watching you. The target here is 80% of people getting screened. We, you know, the implication is we want you to make sure that all of your patients are getting screened. And so this is way cool uh, that people are not showing up. And another thing uh, that is, uh, let's see, that's the email sent to physicians by Medscape Family Medicine. And it says patients commonly stop antidepressants and don't tell their doctors. And again, what's happening here is doctors are being told, hey, your patients are stopping their antidepressants and not telling you. So we want you to grill them. We want you to question them. We want you to interrogate them. And so this is a pretty, uh, a pretty desperate appeal saying that we want you doctors to get compliance. Now, they even confess uh, why people are not compliant. Let's see what they have to say. 20% of patients who are prescribed antidepressants stop taking them, telling the doctor, new research shows. You probably wonder how they do this research. Usually what they do is they take a group of patients and they talk to them and ask them questions, you know. And so characteristics of those most likely to stop their medications are younger age, being diagnosed with anxiety or substance use disorder in addition to depression, and being treated in a general medical setting rather than by a psychiatrist or other mental health specialist. So again, the implication for the doctor is if you have a person who is young, diagnosed with anxiety and depression, don't you treat them. You send them to the psychiatrist or other mental health specialist. Now, why? are people not taking their medications. We actually look into that. Side effects and lack of efficacy. So drugs don't work and the people have side effects. But that is not a reason for non-compliance. Just because drugs don't work, just because you have side effects. So this is what they're telling doctors. Adherence to medication is not a new issue, but it's a particularly important one in the context of depression and antidepressants. Says the author, who is a doctoral candidate at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, Antidepressants can take weeks of regular use before they take effect, and adherence will be very important in that case. So in other words, we're supposed to ask patients, doctors are supposed to ask patients to endure many weeks of regular use with no benefit. 
And so depression itself has also been a factor in non-adherent behavior to medicine. So we want to examine the extent of self-discontinuation of antidepressant medications without physician advice. Now, this is, uh, so this is important, and this is good, it's positive, because these medications, these psychiatric medications, especially in younger people, are associated with early-onset Parkinson's disease. And so these patients who are taking themselves off their medications or not taking them are actually saving themselves from Parkinson's disease. As to suicide, you know, it's common knowledge now that these medications actually cause suicide as opposed to preventing suicide. The most common reasons for stopping antidepressants were the side effects and the medication not helping. And so a high number of self-discontinuation occurred because participants wanted to resolve their mental health problems without recourse to medication. So other people wanted something natural. And so, and even more stopped because a very small proportion stopped taking their antidepressants because the medication was unaffordable or because they were embarrassed. Now, this is important, that cost was not the leading reason for not taking the medication. And of course, why would it be? The government stepped in and said, if you take a drug, we'll pay for it. Individuals with more education read more exposure to propaganda were less likely to self-discontinue. This is unfortunate, but whatever. Compared with participants who had attained up to 11 years of education, those with 12 years of education uh, said they discontinued the medication because it was not working. So people with more education were less likely to discontinue medication without telling your doctor. Now, this is also why we notice that people with more education don't necessarily live longer. And we see this very clearly in what's called the Hispanic paradox. So Hispanics in the United States are less educated than the rest of American citizens, but they live quite a bit longer. And so why? It's because they don't get the indoctrination, they don't get the propaganda, the blind respect for authority teaching, which is now taught in our colleges and advanced degree programs. And Dr. Olaf adds, clinicians can easily underestimate their own level of ignorance when it comes to patients who self-discontinue antidepressants. What you're saying then is you think your your patient's taking the medication, you're, but they're really not, so don't you trust these people. And so what you're saying to doctors is without a sense of humility, we run the risk of assuming that we can simply intuit the name think or believe when our patients are preparing to stop or have recently stopped their antidepressant medication. The new report by Samples and Mojitbal serves a critical function by supplementing clinical intuition with objective data on risk factors for antidepressant self-continuation concludes. Now, with antidepressant self-continuation, uh, we don't have any corollary of medical consequences, of negative medical consequences. And so that is, again, positive, very positive that patients are discontinuing their antidepressants, at least at a rate of 20%. Hopefully, we will see that continue.
Now we have um, addiction programs need help to maximize ACA benefits. So addiction treatment centers need help to fully realize the Affordable Care Act's promise of improved access to high-quality addiction treatment, new research suggests. In other words, what new research suggests is that addiction treatment centers are not getting their economic share of the healthcare dollars. And so we need to get more people to show up at these centers so that they can collect money. Again, this is super positive because we know, um, as discovered in a prior research show on addiction, is that there's no evidence that addiction therapy, in terms of extended one month, two month, three month addiction therapy, helps people to stop using drugs. So this is a method of therapy that actually does not have uh, proven effectiveness. So addiction treatment centers need help to fully realize the Affordable Health Care Act promise. The Affordable Care Act dramatically expands health insurance for addiction treatment and provides unprecedented opportunity for service growth, read uh, money making and get rich. And delivery model reform, investigators led by a PhD assistant professor of social work, University of South Carolina, Columbia, right? Yet most addiction treatment programs lack the staffing and technological capabilities to respond successfully to the Affordable Care Act-driven system change. So we have 30 million people that have new access to insurance coverage for addiction treatment, but we have a lot of addiction treatment programs that don't have the capability to serve those clients. These programs have a real need for technical assistance around information technology as well as staff training. All right. What they're saying then is these centers need to learn how to collect money from the government because the government has passed the law and piling them to these money if only the patients will show up. And so what we're seeing there is the patients are not showing up. So very interesting. So the findings suggest that measures of support provided by these studies agencies fall short of likely needed generated by healthcare reform. So that's gobbledygook. What does it mean? It means that state agencies from 49 states and the District of Columbia need to help addiction treatment programs respond to new requirements under health care reform and so that they can access this pool of money. So it's very important to realize here then that what's going on is people are not showing up. People are not showing up for the, the centers. The centers are not collecting the money that, that um, this writer feels that they are entitled to. So only Idaho, Massachusetts, and New York are currently allocating state funds to facilitate, that means make easier, Affordable Care Act implementation with the addiction treatment system. The researchers report. So there are only these four states, so one, two, I'm sorry, three states, are making it possible for addiction centers 
to have the technology to access this pile of money. And so, of course, their conclusion is that more resources are needed around information technology, electronic health records, and that's really key. So information technology, electronic health records, is just simply a way to bill. And this is, of course, where the shortage lies, in a way to bill and a way to attract the clients who are already paid for. Okay. But we also need to do our job from the ground up in terms of creating a culture where addiction treatment is considered to be as important as deserving of professionally trained staff as any other part of medicine. And so now that what they're saying is, okay, we need more staff with more certifications. So, Again, we've got a crisis here. The crisis is people are not showing up for addiction intervention, and the addiction centers don't have the technology to collect the money that, of course, they are entitled to. And so what this does then is it reveals a situation where people are, are simply making decisions not show up, and that's outstanding. And it turns out that that really is the, um, the solution. It doesn't require a national movement or an organization. All it requires is each individual person asking themselves, when was the last time always benefited by the medical industrial complex. What happened during my last encounter? Did that move my health forward? And you have to just separate this from going in and getting testing and being assured that you're average. Uh, that does not move your health forward. It doesn't in any way materially change your health. All it does is create maybe an awareness of you, in you, of your health. So the important thing to understand is to distinguish between going and engaging the system and being observed versus engaging the system and being improved. Now the other thing about being observed or being measured is people don't understand a uh, scientific concept, which is that whenever you measure something, you change the thing that you measure. You actually deteriorate the thing that you measure. One common example is using a thermometer. So when you take a thermometer and you insert a thermometer, say, into a cup of coffee to measure the temperature of the coffee, that thermometer actually takes heat or energy from the coffee to raise the level of mercury, let's say, and that registers what the temperature is. But obviously, the smaller the volume of the coffee, the bigger the change that the thermometer actually causes in the coffee through the measuring process. It is no different from your doctor doing a test. Every single test that doctors do on a patient actually changes the patient's internal environment and generally destroys, degrades the person's health. 
As an example, when doctors draw blood, this is something that's really overlooked and underestimated. When doctors draw blood, they're actually taking out your life-giving fluid. This is vital, important fluid that they are taking out. And obviously, with repeated testing, um, the amount of, of uh, vital fluids being removed deteriorates the person's health. And if the person is sick to begin with, you know, things deteriorate very quickly. Another example is doing an x-ray. The x-rays impart radiation, and each time a person gets a test, they're getting irradiated. And so while a person might say, well, I got an MRI, I got a CAT scan, I got a chest x-ray, and it shows everything's fine. What they doesn't, what they don't get is you don't get a little note saying, hey, we measured your health status, and we took a little bit of your health away while we were measuring. And so it takes um, a different attitude of understanding the concept of intervention. So this intervention actually is not um, harmless. It's not benign. And so you need to take that into into um, into effect when you're evaluating your medical encounter and saying, hey, did that really improve my health or not? And most health encounters, uh, I say most, I mean between 85 and 98%, do not improve the person's health, uh, you know, for, of course, a variety of reasons. So it's important then to realize uh, the neutral to negative effect that healthcare has. And the solution to avoiding the 880, becoming one of the 880,000 people who are killed at the hands of the medical industrial complex each year is simply to not show up. Definitely not show up for any uh, routine screenings. Now, the next issue is what if you have to show up? If you have to show up, and I say have to show up, if for some reason you're scraped up off the ground and taken into a hospital, for example, um, the important thing at that point, again, is to refuse any and all intervention that does not directly impact the situation that you're there for. So if you're there for, say, uh, congestive heart failure, well, this is not the time to get immunized, for example. If you're there for uh, congestive heart failure, this is not the time to be uh, screened for cancer. So you need to realize that each and every intervention, each and every so-called testing has an incredible downside. And so if there's not uh, an immediate need or reason for it, then uh, definitely refuse it. So one, don't show up. And two, when you don't show up, don't even allow anyone to make you feel guilty about not showing up. You can let them know, hey, if they think a pap smear is so important, they should go get one. If they think a colonoscopy is so important, they should go get one. So that is a way to uh, to handle that and to not respond 
definitely don't respond to social pressure. But more to the point, you can just simply not show up. And there's no need to even talk about not showing up or discuss that you're not showing up. Just don't show up. It's like breathing. Um, there's no need to announce that I took a breath today. You can just say, you can just continue to take a breath and continue breathing. Okay, we have about 20 minutes left, and we've got tons of um, questions here in the chat room. Let me take a look over here and see if we have questions among the listeners. No, we do not have questions among the listeners. Okay, so for listeners, you can click your button for questions. I'll answer those questions right now. I'll answer the chat room questions. Good. An elderly lady asked me what might be able to be done about chronic vertigo. Does the doctor have any experience with this? Yes. Chronic vertigo. Vertigo is when the room spins. And when the room spins, it's often a problem. Well, it's always a problem in the brain. That's where it starts. And it can be a problem, either a localized problem with the eighth nerve. That's the hearing nerve. This is a nerve that helps also with your balance and helps you sort out uh, what's up and down and what's left and right. And usually, though, it's a localized toxicity in the eighth nerve or a toxicity in the blood, but the level of toxins in the blood is such that it affects the brain. The answer is to simply change the diet, less chemicals, and to remove uh, chemicals from the system. So um, switch the diet to organic. That decreases the input of chemicals. Increase the water intake. That dilutes the chemicals you already have. It increases the bowel movement. That causes chemicals to leave. That's the um, simplest solution. And for someone who's an elderly person, I would definitely recommend a gentle way to go. Now, what else do we have here in the chat room? Are there any herbs or vitamins that can increase the size of a male organ? All right. So to get a grip on this one, you have to understand why uh, a male organ is the size that it is. A male organ is the size that it is in proportion to its blood supply. That's number one. So the blood supply, this is, we're talking blood supply to super small blood vessels because that's what makes things happen. The next thing is is proportion to is the person's level of well-being and relaxation. So the simplest way to approach the issue, of course, is to improve the circulation. And um, although we are definitely out of stock in vitality capsules at the moment, uh, many male vitality capsule users feel that this is one of the big, biggest benefits that they experience with vitality capsule, which is that um, they have a size increase and as well as an increase in function, which I attribute to circulatory improvement. But the big deal is circulation is, is, uh, is what you're after. So you're after being well hydrated and you're after using herbs like ginger, garlic, cayenne, all of these improve circulation tremendously and 
create um, great results. Question, what is the difference between jojoba oil and castor oil? Why is jojoba better for older people? Okay. So in my book, Do You Have the Guts Be Beautiful, I talk about using different oils on the skin for different ages. And so the book was written in 1987-88. No, I'm sorry, 2007-2008, um, really 2008. So since then, I've had a lot more experience with uh, people, oils, and skin. And it seems that actually castor oil appears to be the better oil for people of all ages. Okay. Okay, so any connection between A myotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS. Now ALS is a um, disease where the spinal cord is destroyed in certain um, parts and places. And this uh, destruction can be progressive. And so the question this person has is, is there any connection between ALS and parasites or chemicals? And the answer is yes. People who have ALS, um, well, it's this way. ALS has been known to be improved by removing chemicals such as artificial sweeteners from food and by, um, I would say getting rid of parasites, but probably a better thing to say would be by restoring a proper um, mix of organisms in the um, in the intestines. So, do you know of any treatment for ALS? Um, in my experience, I have not treated people with severe ALS. For mild ALS, um, cleansing and dietary change works uh, very nice, very nicely. Okay. Okay, and then we have. Oh boy, let's see. Got to move all these things around the screen here. Okay, so we have a question. Let's see. We click something here. See if I can get this. Hi, you're on the air. What's your question? Yes, I had a two-part question for you, Doctor. Uh, one was with the turpentine. Have you Hi. had any experiences or? Um, any trials with play, uh, putting certain amounts of turpentine on the bottom of the feet, and what kind of results did you receive if you did? Uh, I um, it actually, it does work very well. I use that in babies because with babies, um, you have to be really cautious because putting turpentine in other parts of the skin, um, the skin, the surface area is, is such a high. It's, it's so high proportionally in babies as a as a ratio to their weight, but babies can also get very sick. So, turpentine for feet is very effective in babies, like if they have pneumonia or you know a serious um, condition. So that's the case where I would use it for grown-ups or adults. Um, I don't because they have you know this much bigger person, so you can apply turpentine topically to the area where the problem is and the internal dosing is much more um, predictable and safe. Oh, okay. Okay, I was just curious, dealing with essential oils. I'm like, okay, turpentine really is an essential oil. I wonder what kind of effect or how could one utilize um, the turpentine from the bottom of the feet. You know, some people, no matter what the benefit would be, 
they just can't stomach the taste or the smell or whatever the case may be. So that's what made me think. I wonder, could that be applied on the bottom of the feet to what extent and what would it be for good to do? Um, and... Yeah, what you're referring to is, is like the range rock technique is what they is what they a lot of times refer to this as the range rock technique where you put oils in the bottom of the feet. I would say uh, turpentine in the bottom of the feet should be pretty harmless for an adult, and okay. you can just massage it in like you would with reflexology. Now, on your recommendation, orally, you say do a, a teaspoon twice a uh, twice a day, twice a week. How would you That's equate that to the? Go ahead. I'm, not twice Pardon a day. Me? Not twice a day. Oh, I thought I heard you say uh, one teaspoon twice a day, twice a week. No. So it's one. One per day, twice a week? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay, how would that um, approximately equate to uh, placing it on the bottom of the feet of an adult? Or can you do it more since you're going through the bottom of the feet no, no, more no, than no, once no. a Okay. Um, so the way you look at it is turpentine is turpentine. So you don't want to put more than a teaspoon on the bottom of the feet. So okay. Okay. It, yeah, and the lower the dose, the better. Whatever the lowest dose that gets results, that's the dose that you should use. I'm so glad I called in because um, I listened to one of your archives, and I I thought it said twice a uh, twice a day, twice a week. So like. Two days, you know, consecutive two days, I did it that way, and then I laid off. So I'll go yeah. back to just doing it once. Okay. Um, the second question is, when I first heard about you last year on uh, Patrick Timponi, I had tried the, um, the quarter of a teaspoon that night, and within 15, 10 to 15 minutes, I had the feeling for about 30 minutes, because I timed it, for at least about 30 minutes, I had the feeling of like, um, kind of an uplifting feeling with a mix of uh, my equilibrium being off, kind of like a, a drunken feel, but not drunk, just kind of like, I guess, um, my motor skills were kind of off, like a little woozy, but not a sick feeling. And I was curious, and I, I never had that issue again. I've been doing this for like a year on and off, but that very first time I did it, it kind of, it didn't scare me or anything, but it just kind of like, okay, I got to find out is this normal or what effect is this doing? Um, yeah, so what I was referring to is my website, vitalitycapsules.com. And on the um, website, go to vitalitycapsules.com forward slash candida, C-A-N-D-I-D-A. And there you'll get a document that's 30, um, 32 pages about. And it goes into incredible detail about um, turpentine and exactly um, how to use it. So that first time reaction was most likely due to the fact that you didn't um, go through the diet and cleansing type preparation. So when um, the bad guys decided it was time to leave, they basically were all dressed up with uh, no place to go. Okay. Somebody says, what will happen if you don't get your screening, will your insurance premiums increase and will you be prevented from taking a government job? Honestly, possibly, but when you stop to think about it, um, the health insurance 
is part of the problem. The health insurance is what makes it possible to murder 880,000 Americans every year. The people who are murdered, most of them are insured, and the ones with the highest kill rate have insurance, namely Medicare. So um, the thing to do, of course, would be to somehow educate yourself to the point where you feel comfortable letting go of your insurance premiums. That's number one. Number two is um, a government job. Again, you're talking about working for the entity that is in charge of defending and protecting Monsanto, the agency that's in charge of compelling um, people to accept dangerous therapies. And so is that really part of your you know, health and happiness program? Probably not. So these are two things that if you end up not doing them, you will probably end up being a lot healthier and a lot wealthier. Another question, Dr. Daniels, do you think the biology textbooks need to be rewritten? Biology textbooks need to be rewritten. I think they need to be taken with a serious pound of salt. Um, I think that the biology textbooks, in terms of the books that are being used to teach people K through 12 and even um, bachelor's degree biology are, you know, riddled with theories that are that just simply don't have any, any support in terms of fact. And, and I think a big shortcoming of the educational system in the United States is that it's actually um, more propaganda than anything. So rather than the biology text being rewritten, I think it just needs to be disregarded. And I think people need to um, spend a little more time in nature observing things themselves and then of course read and then you know kind of match the two up and say hey is what I'm reading matching what I'm observing if it's not we're not going to dismiss it and so people need to be comfortable um, using their own judgments I think if people can just get comfortable with their own judgment of what's right what's wrong what's true and what's not then that would be uh, that would be the best bet. I am not in favor of banning or limiting books. Can small little flower help children that are bald due to alopecia? I think if you have a child who's bald due to alopecia, that a small little flower is not the first, uh, first thing to do. I think for a, a child who has hair loss, you need to first look at the kid's diet, uh, you need to then take a look at his immunization status. In other words, stop immunizing him. And you need to take a look at his nutritional status. So, oh, and his, I'm sorry, um, detoxing. Is the kid constipated or not? So I think you need to do those things first before you consider a small little flower. And I don't think a small little flower is recommended for people under 12. The small little flower has a lot of other effects too. It has effects on the kidneys, on the endocrine system, and so on. So you really wouldn't want to give it to somebody who's um, pre-pubertal. All right. I read your book, Do You Have the Guts You're Beautiful? Thank you. Is a liver flush safe for people who have autoimmune disease? Yes, it is. However, before the liver flush, you should definitely do the other things in the book. So it's not, uh, it's not, not the place to start. Okay, so we have about three minutes left here. And if I can just, ah, here we are. 
can slide this little slider up. Now, guys, what do you say about the use of vitamins and which ones to take? That is a very personal matter. Some people need no vitamins. Some people need some vitamins. So it's very, um, very different and very personal. So I say to anyone, before they start with vitamins, again, start with the diet, start with the hydration, start with... Then you can take a look at vitamins. And the vitamins I recommend are in my um, document, the Candida Cleaner, which you can get at vitalitycapsules.com forward slash Candida. Okay, well, that is it. We are at the end of our radio show. And next week, are you doing time? Are you a prisoner of the medical industrial complex? how to change your decision-making criteria and your mental processes to set yourself free. We'll see you next week.